Deep in the rolling hills of North Carolina sits a stately manor that rivals the castles of Europe. Built by a true visionary, the Biltmore Estate is a breathtaking place, and just beyond its borders, the town of Asheville has some secrets to share. Let's step back into time and visit America's version of Downton Abbey and its neighboring town. There will be grandeur, and there just may be a few ghosts. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. The soft melody of the classical music coming from the Victrola lured me down the winding staircase toward the library. Even before I could see him, I could see him. He'd be sitting in his chair in the corner, a good distance away from the fireplace, with nothing but a floor lamp to light the words he held in his hand. He'd spent most of his life in his books. They were his treasure second only to me. He'd tell everyone that. I quietly stepped into the room, wondering how long it'd take him to notice I was there. The soft light on his face made him look younger than he was. Always handsome, but the years were creeping up on him, on all of us, on the house itself. Hello, dear, he finally said, but didn't bother looking up at me. Cedric lifted his head and then lay it down again, resting just at Father's feet. Where are you tonight? I asked him, running my fingers along the spines of books stacked to the tall ceiling. This was the room for magic. That's what I always thought. Nothing could be more enchanting than books. Far away to India, he said, smiling and glancing up at me, his thin mustache curling upward. Take me too? I asked, even as I pulled my own destination from the bookshelf. I wanted to be just like him. To really travel to faraway places, to speak a myriad of languages, to search the world for its secrets, to collect them in my home, our home, our beautiful Biltmore. But none of that would happen, not in the way I'd planned anyway. Like my mother before me, I'd give birth to life here, in these walls, and it wouldn't be until much later that I'd find my adventure. I'd have to forget these moments, these memories of my father in his grand library. I'd have to forget life before the fall, when things were easy, when things were good. But maybe they weren't as easy as he let on. I study the creases in his face through memory, the subtle struggle of his smile. Life isn't easy for the wealthy or the poor. Life is no respecter of persons. It takes us all. We don't like to think so, but every form of life has its hardships, its responsibilities, its everyday struggles. That's something I learned through the years. Money can buy a lot, but it can't buy you joy or a long life. It can't buy your freedom from society's expectations. 
It can't buy you the life you want, the fairy tale. This place, these magnificent walls, are proof of that. I sometimes dream that I'm back there with mother and father, my reverie continually pulling me back to when times were their best. I imagine their happy faces, pink with wine and dancing. I hear their laughter and am haunted by scenes of pure joy. I'd never been as satisfied in marriage as they were, never as successful at managing a family, at managing expectations. Perhaps that's how he wanted me, though. I like to think so. He encouraged my untamed heart, never trying to squelch my wanderings. He understood me better than perhaps anyone in my life. I was part of him. He was mine, and I was his. Our blood, that same blood that built a fortune on dreams and grit, was ours. I wonder what he'd think of me now. Would he be disappointed or proud? He loved me. I knew that much. If I saw him again, I felt confident I knew what he'd do. He'd smile at me like he had all those many times before. I'd ask him where he was tonight, and if he'd take me away with him. One day, that's how it'll happen. One day, he'll say, yes. America's largest home was built by George Washington Vanderbilt. Biltmore made its public debut on Christmas Eve of 1895. Surprisingly, the massive home only took six years to build. Some rooms were never fully complete during George's lifetime, but the medieval Gothic castle on the hill looks much like it did when George first moved in. The house covers four acres of floor space. The 250-room American castle features three kitchens, 33 guest rooms, 43 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, an indoor swimming pool, and a bowling alley. The estate is 8,000 acres of rolling hills, majestic woods, five gardens, and 30 miles of roadway. The Vanderbilt family is one of the most prestigious names in the United States, best known for their work in the railroad industry. The story of their wealth began with Cornelius Vanderbilt, who lived from 1794 to 1877. The legend goes that when he was 16, his mother gave him a $100 loan and turned it into millions. He was an independent, ambitious man. As a young entrepreneur, he began a ferry service across New York Bay. He then branched out bigger into a fleet of 100 ships that traveled to Europe and beyond. This business made him wealthy, but it was his second venture that would scale the family name into the history books. He began investing in the railroad, including the New York Central. In 1873, he gave $1,000,000 to a university in Nashville that would change their name to honor their contributor and is now known as Vanderbilt University. When he died in 1877, he left a whopping $100 million estate to his eldest son, William Henry. When William was young, his father worried he wouldn't be a good businessman, but he proved him wrong by doubling the estate's value. 
William had an eye for art and collected more than 200 paintings in his lifetime. He displayed his art in a mansion he built in 1881 in Manhattan. Like his son would later do, William Henry built a state-of-the-art home with modern amenities such as refrigeration and telephones. He filled the mansion with beautiful European furniture, magnificent tapestries, and even a glass-covered stable courtyard to keep the horses from New York sometimes rough weather. The youngest of eight children and the only one still living at home when the house was completed, George inherited his father's interests in art, architecture, and beautiful things. He began collecting art and books as a child, a menagerie that would grow into a significant collection as he aged. Interestingly, he even helped design his living area in his father's home, as well as his own personal library. Seriously, every book lover's dream. Young George wasn't like his other brothers or his father, though. He didn't enjoy the business side of things. He much preferred to explore the world, seeking art and experiences rather than growing the family business. It was his love of travel that would eventually lead him to Asheville, North Carolina. In the late 19th century, Asheville was a small but popular resort area. With its lovely views, mineral springs, and pleasant weather, it's not hard to see why people would make the trip to visit there. He'd visited with his mother in 1888. It was a trip that would change the course of his entire life. George fell in love with Asheville and hired two of the most impressive designers of his time, architect Richard Morris Hunt and landscaper Frederick Law Olmsted. The goal was to create a grand home that would be filled with George's collection of artifacts, furniture, and art that he'd gathered from his travels around the world, while also being a self-sustaining farm and business. Modeled after European baronies, the building of Biltmore began, and George began buying land. Hunt was not only an architect, he was also a friend of the family. He helped with several other projects for the Vanderbilts, and he and George had a relationship much like father and son. He's known for his work on many projects, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Olmsted was a prestigious landscaper. He designed New York Central Park, the U.S. Capitol grounds, and even helped with the preservation of Yosemite. Hundreds of laborers began working on Biltmore in 1889. The house would become something that looked like it had been there for ages, but would have the best amenities technology had to offer at the time, such as plumbing, heating, electricity, fire alarms, refrigeration, and elevators. After six laborious years, Biltmore opened its doors to guests on Christmas Eve in 1895. The home was decorated with all the Christmas trimmings and boasted a grand feast. Even in its earliest days, Biltmore was always a place for guests to gather and enjoy. Today, Christmas is still a special time at Biltmore and is one of the busiest seasons. With grand Christmas trees in every room and the large tree on the green out front, it's a glorious sight to see. You can even reserve candlelight tours to get the full experience. George lived in the large home as a bachelor for the first three years. Then he married Edith Thresher. The couple had one child, Cornelia, in 1900, and she grew up at the estate. 
It took a large staff to run the house and grounds. George believed in paying people well. He offered New York wages to North Carolinians, as well as providing nice living quarters. The family also threw a Christmas party for the staff and their families every year. Biltmore offered more than grandeur, though. It was, and still is, an income-producing estate. The farms, greenhouse, woods, and livestock proved to be a wise investment. In 1889, George expanded and bought the nearby town, Best. He would turn it into Biltmore Village, a place for estate workers and others to have a school, various shops, barbers, and more. In addition, he rented lovely cottages to people. It, too, was another investment for George. George and Edith owned several other residences. Hard to understand why, I know. But the couple still was involved in the day-to-day runnings of Biltmore until 1914, when George sadly passed away following an appendectomy. After his death, Edith returned to Biltmore and took over his role there. It proved to be a difficult task, so in 1915, she sold 87,000 acres to the government. She sold other ventures too, including Biltmore Village in 1921. Edith remarried and shared several homes with her new husband, but still visited Biltmore often. Cornelia continued to live there with her husband, John Francis Amherst Cecil. The couple had two sons, George and William, both born at Biltmore in the late 1920s. The Great Depression meant that the running of Biltmore needed to change. Cornelia and John opened the house up to the public in 1930 to generate funds and to help keep the estate going. Brothers George and William undertook a significant renovation and revitalization of the estate in the 1960s. The goal was to bring it back to its once glory and to make the estate self-sustaining once again. I'd say their goals have been realized. It employs some 2,300 people and hosts 1.4 million guests every year. All of that is a lot of pretty history, isn't it? But what about the area's darker past? We'll talk about that after this brief promo. Hello, and welcome to the Realm of Unknown. My name is Shane, and I shall be your guide along this strange adventure into a world all its own, filled to the brim with wonders and mysteries. A podcast that focuses on all things paranormal and supernatural. Join me, your host, each week as we dive deep into unique stories and legends about the unexplained and strange from all around the globe. You can find Realm of Unknown on all your favorite podcast listening platforms such as Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, and more. So come join us and take part in our next journey into the Realm of Unknown. Biltmore is the crown of the area. But nearby Asheville has some secrets to tell. Asheville is a lovely town with lots of hipster shops and eateries. It's a fun place to visit, but it has some dark history, some skeletons in its closet, like the one found at the Old Battery Park Hotel. On July 17, 1936, Mr. Clevenger made his way through the Battery Park Hotel to his niece's room. They'd been visiting Asheville that summer, Her uncle was to meet her that morning, only no one answered when Mr. Clevenger knocked. In fact, 
The only thing that seemed to be coming from the room was an eerie silence. Sensing that something was wrong, Mr. Clevenger slightly turned the doorknob. The room was unlocked, but nothing could have prepared him for what he'd find on the other side of that door. Helen Clevenger was a 19-year-old honor student from New York University. She was a beautiful young woman with a bright future ahead of her, but that one summer night stole her future and her life. Her uncle found her on her back, laying in a pool of blood in the middle of her hotel room. Sometime the night before, someone had gotten into her room and murdered her. Mr. Clevenger called for help, and the authorities soon arrived. Further investigation revealed that Helen's face had been slashed, she'd been brutally beaten, and she'd been shot in the chest. The gun had been pressed into her body when the attacker shot, which is thought to have been done to muffle the sound of the gun. Her pajamas were covered in blood, and she was virtually unrecognizable. Her time of death was estimated to be around 1 in the morning. The story goes that the hotel was packed that week, and there were many out-of-town guests. In its day, the Battery Park Hotel served guests like Babe Ruth, Grace Kelly, and Mickey Rooney. Nothing like this could have ever been expected in such a beautiful, safe hotel. And it wasn't robbery, because nothing was taken. Police began the search for the murderer right away, and they didn't have to look far to begin their questions. The hotel's bellhop, Durham Jones, claimed to have seen a man go from the hall to the manager's office and jump from the hotel's porch to the dark street below. He gave a brief description to the police, and they began an all-out effort to find whoever committed this gruesome murder. Newspapers and true crime magazines began reporting the case, and before long, the story of Helen's death had reached the ears of thousands. This led to lots of dead-end leads, though, but authorities didn't give up hope. On August 9, 1936, someone came forward and confessed to the crime. Martin Moore was a 22-year-old hall boy for the hotel. He'd said that he hadn't planned to kill anyone and that he only wanted to rob a room. He tried other rooms at first, but the doors were locked, and that's when he came to Helen's room. He claimed that even though he'd entered quietly, Helen immediately sat up in bed, hearing him slip in. She approached him and began to scream when she saw that he had a gun. To keep her quiet, not wanting to wake any of the guests and get himself caught, he pressed the gun to her chest and shot. And just to be sure she wouldn't survive and scream again, he bashed her face with the butt of his pistol. Knowing the ins and outs of the hotel, he was able to get back to the street in record time, but not before being seen by Jerome Jones. He then came in the next morning as usual for his shift, as if nothing ever happened. He then proceeded to go to work throughout the next few weeks, despite the media and police pressing in on the case. Police found it hard to believe that he'd been planning to rob her because he didn't, but that was the only story they had. He was executed in the gas chamber. But there has been some talk throughout the years that perhaps Martin Moore had been pressured into confessing. After all, the hotel was losing business because of media attention. Their wealthy clientele didn't want to stay in the murder hotel. And Martin Moore was African-American. 
1936, it would have made him a target for wrong justice. It's one of those things we'll likely never know. But the ghost of Helen still supposedly haunts the hotel, which is now apartments for senior citizens. It's rumored that her room is kept vacant. That's what our ghost tour guide, Tad, told us anyway. Makes sense to me. No one wants to sleep with a ghost. Asheville boasts lots of ghost and grizzly haunts, like that of the Jackson Building, where it's said that five people jumped to their deaths in the decade following the stock market crash. And the many sights of the victims of William Harris, an outlaw who went on a murder spree after breaking out of prison. And even the local Methodist church has its own form of a holy ghost, witnessed by the entire congregation. The stories are vast, some far-fetched and others somewhat plausible. What's always interesting to me about tales of the paranormal are the historical facts surrounding the people and events that lived or died there. If you're ever in Asheville, it's worth taking a ghostly walking tour. Hear the stories from a local and enjoy a bit of folklore alongside your visit to Biltmore. It'll certainly bring a bit of balance to your experience. Speaking of Biltmore, it's got its own ghost stories. People have reported seeing Mr. Vanderbilt on the property, or even heard Edith, his wife, calling his name. When alive, Edith would frequently go in search of her husband, who was usually in the massive, elegant library, always the lover of his books. She'd have to draw him out of whatever story he was reading to either join their guests or to finally go to bed. Both visitors and workers have claimed to hear noises of a party, too. Glasses clinking, laughter, the voices of people echoing down the elaborate halls. One of my favorite stories is that of hearing water splashing in the pool, which is empty. If you've ever been inside or even seen pictures of the place, it's the perfect scene for a few friendly ghosts. If I had something so amazing built, I'd hope for the chance to still visit it on occasion, too. Visiting Biltmore and Asheville in the fall is the perfect way to get into the Christmas spirit, which is why I thought it'd be a great episode topic for the end of November. Next month, we'll be delving deeper into the heart and folklore of the season. If you'd like to see footage of our recent trip to Biltmore, you can find it on YouTube by searching Fable Collective or on the website, fablecollective.com. Our latest journal entry, titled Wanderer, is a lovely yet haunting story by Whitney Zahar. Here's a short excerpt. The breeze kicked up a little, dampening my cheeks with a light, salty spray. My bare feet dug into the cool sand and I curled my toes deeper into the coarse, damp grains. I watched the waves sweep and crash, a gray-blue matching my eyes. With a deep sigh, I longed to stand in this place forever, to just lose myself in the waves, wind, and sand. But the sky was darkening, a growing heaviness in the air, almost like a warning clinging to my skin. Shivering, I pulled my red beach wrap shawl around me as I turned to walk with the pounding surf by my side. The beach was expansive, nothing but an unending horizon between sea mist and sand. 
My thoughts quieted under the dull thunder of the waves, and yet I didn't feel at peace. You can find the full story either on the website or on YouTube. If you'd like to support the show and all of Fable Collective's work, become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Your support means the world. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.